Welcome to this week's Unscripted. After a very busy week, we've got a lot to be discussing today, so I'm going to jump right in with our introductions. First up, lecturer on counterterrorism and criminology, Dr. Rizwan Sabir, who himself was wrongly arrested of counterterrorism offences and had spent seven days in prison before being cleared and has gone on to be a renowned expert on these issues. And joining him today from Hizmatahir, UK, is the chairman, Dr. Abdul Wahid. So we're very, very blessed to have a plethora of doctors with us today, or cursed, depending on your perspective. Could you do us the honour of explaining what's happened this week and how we've all come to be here on this call? Thank you for having me on the show. So just a brief rundown uh, of what's happened. Basically, an individual has engaged in an act of violence where they have killed bystanders outside of uh, Parliament in London. I think the casualties or the deaths have been around four or five at present, and then gone on to try to enter the Houses of Parliament and used a knife and killed one of the police officers who was on guard. The issue is being called uh, within the media as a lone wolf attack, and what that basically means is that the individual has had no support uh, per se from or direction from an organization and has done this uh, based on his own decision uh, and political agency, you could say. So that's essentially what's happened. The assailant was shot and killed by armed police officers outside of parliament. And now there have been a series of uh, issues that have arisen in terms to what has motivated this individual, who he was, what are the connections between his uh, networks and this act of violence, and whether a profile of the individual can really tell us anything about why he committed this act of violence. You bring up an important point there about his profile. He doesn't fit a lot of the ordinary sort of stereotypes around people who engage in these sorts of acts of violence. For one, he's vastly outside the normal age range, isn't he? Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, that for me is the signal that showcases, you know, there is no kind of social scientific kind of algorithm or rule that can be created in order to say if you are between the ages of 18 and 24, then you are more likely to become engaged in armed violence. People feel a sense of disempowerment. They feel a sense of grievance at all ages of their life. And depending on how strong they feel about whatever it is that's motivating their actions, it doesn't matter really how old you are. So I think first and foremost, it kind of puts a nail in the coffin of the people who try to come up with rules in order to explain reality, which is never as clear cut as uh, the rules so stipulate. And secondly, it shows that political grievance and anger is something that goes across all age ranges and can not only be kind of uh, assigned to young people. Well, one of the things that we've seen as an outcome of this is a lot of so-called experts and commentators pointing out that the last three people involved in acts of political violence in the, in the UK, from the Muslim side anyway, have been uh, converts. So the two people involved in, in the Lee Rigby murder and now this gentleman. Does that hold much weight in your opinion? The idea that converts are a higher risk factor? We know since Richard Reed, it's been seen as an indicating factor. Well, I think that's a very interesting question. I think there's a plethora of kind of issues. Let me try and keep this relatively straightforward. I don't know how many people joined the faith 
uh, off the top of my head. But what I do know is that there is only a very tiny minority within those who join the faith of Islam who are resorting to acts of political violence. So I'm not willing to accept this kind of generalization that if you are somehow joining the faith of Islam, that you are more susceptible to become involved in political violence. Political violence is a tactic, and many people use it for many different reasons. And those reasons are sometimes justified or legitimized in the name of particular ideology, whether it's a far-right ideology, whether it's an Islamic ideology, whether it's a secular anarchist ideology that you may well have, and as history shows us, has been used to undertake and legitimize acts of political violence. So I'm not willing to accept uh, this uh, premise or this notion that if you are a convert, you are more likely or susceptible to become involved in political violence. That's the same thing as saying that, you know, if you are a Sufi Muslim and then you start hanging out with people who are of a different persuasion of Islam than you, then you are more likely to become involved in political violence. You wouldn't really run with that. And I think the same framework applies here as well. However, one additional thing that I would say is that there is this kind of fetishization or attraction to this idea to say that Islam is so dangerous and so perverse that it has an ability to convert good people who are not Muslim into violent killers. And this ties into these Orientalist kind of fantasies which seek to construct the other as a barbaric, savage other who is always, always going to be a danger to who we are and what we stand and believe for. So I think even the, this idea that converts are somehow becoming more dangerous when they become Muslim is actually an extension of Orientalism. It taps into that historically situated Orientalist discourse. And for that reason, issue a word of caution around kind of internalizing it and asking questions on that basis. Let's, uh, let's quickly switch gears here and uh, let's bring Dr. Abdul Wahid because the response from Hizbut Tahrir immediately afterwards was essentially saying, we're not making a statement. Why was that your response? Why did Hizbut Tahrir not issue a statement in condemnation or explanation or any of the other kind of normally accepted statements that one would make? Why did Hizbut Tahrir choose to remain silent? brothers, and to your audience, brothers and sisters who are listening. First of all, why would you make a statement about something you don't know anything about? We're getting the actual facts, like Dr. Rizwan said, were that we knew that a man had knocked down many people on Westminster Bridge, crashed his car into the gates of Parliament, and run out with a knife and then been killed. We don't know whether he's mentally ill. We don't know if he's Muslim or non-Muslim. To this day, we don't know his motive. Actually, one of the headlines in this morning's newspaper is the attacker acted alone, and we will probably never know his motive, say the police. So frankly speaking, most of the comment on this that's been going on for the last three days has been absolute speculation, not based in any fact whatsoever. So indeed, the first comment we made was approximately 24 hours after the event, where the main point we made was, we are not going to speculate on, on an issue that we just do not know the details of. Our statement was more an address to the Muslim community about the expectation of the kind of focus and pressure they're going to find themselves under once again, uh, when you see the kind of 
political and media response that you saw in the last three or four days? Dr. Abdul Wahid, it's been posited that either Islam as a religion or as many of the commentariat like to say, as an ideology, is one of the, the causes behind the acts of terrorism and these sorts of acts of violence. Your organization is obviously seen to be heavily involved in, if you accept that premise and that narrative, the conveyor belt of supporting and spreading the Islamist ideology. How do you uh, respond to that? Does it, does it worry you that you're seen to be, or you may even be contributing to the issues around radicalization? You know, obviously I'd reject the idea that I'm contributing to those ideas at all, but I think we don't have a definition of radicalization that's consistent. If radicalization means politicizing people, then I don't think uh, that's necessarily a problematic thing. If, you, if radicalization means Islamizing people, <coughs> making people more, helping people to know more about Islam as a way of life, certainly don't think that's a problem. Um, but I think this conveyor belt argument is completely bogus, apart from the fact that, and you have an expert on, on this in the, your panel today, maybe you can challenge me if I'm wrong, but as far as I'm aware, there's absolutely no empirical evidence for this. It's a theory that was speculated by a bunch of right-wing think tanks in the early 2000s that really has taken hold amongst some. And if you really want an idea of how badly this conveyor belt theory goes on in practice, when school children who ask for a place to pray are seen as on that conveyor belt, or when Tower Hamlet's authority issue guidance to parents that if you see your child behaving better and becoming more, you know, better behaved than normal, then that is a warning sign that they're possibly being radicalized. Then you can see how crazy this theory has become that you have a conveyor belt that starts from good manners, good behavior, praying, that moves on to men and women sitting separately in public places and behaving modestly and moves then on to certain political positions that you might hold as a Muslim vis-a-vis events going on in the world to the idea that people that hold all these views somehow are going to end up on this conveyor belt to violence. It's, it's a crazy and it's, you know, it's a frightening phenomenon for, for us to see in this day and age. The argument is that something needs to be done to stop people from engaging in acts of political violence. Dr. Rizwan, what's your take on this and what can be done to effectively stop people from getting involved in political violence and to spot the signs of people getting involved in these sorts of activities before they happen? Now, recently I was giving a lecture on terrorism and one of my students put their hand up and said, how do we stop terrorism? And because that question was slightly uh, diverting from the actual subject of the lecture, I explained to him that the best way to stop terrorism is to stop engaging in it. Now, that's something that is so straightforward and simple that it always gets overlooked. You know, if Isaac Newton, uh, one of the most profound scientists that the, the modern world has ever known, can turn around and say, in my third theory, every action has an equal and an opposing reaction, then I think it's quite clear that every government policy and action throughout the course of history up until the present day will have an equal and an opposing reaction. You cannot go around 
nice people taking people's rubber and gold and diamonds and copper and all the rest of their minerals and resources, appropriating their culture, colonizing the people, oppressing them and expect nothing to happen to you. It is frankly ridiculous to even make that argument. Now, some people will say in response to what I've just said that I am justifying terrorism or um, uh, legitimizing it. Now, the first and foremost thing you have to remember, and this is where I draw on social theory put forward by Franz Fanon, Fanon, writing during the age of the anti-colonial struggle, said that the people who are on the receiving end of colonial violence will replicate the only thing that they know, which is violence orchestrated by the state. So when we say that all these terrorists are killing us, indiscriminately, they're engaging in armed activity that's trying to undermine us and so on and so forth, our culture and values. Actually, if you apply this Fanonian theory, what you find is that they are actually just mirroring and replicating what they themselves have experienced. But the way you stop political violence and terrorism is first and foremost, you stop engaging with it. Secondly, there is a plethora of empirical evidence that basically stipulates and shows that the risk of political violence increases in those nation states which are repressive and uh, subjugate their own people. So if you carry out, if you implement policies and carry out practices that marginalize, exclude, discriminate, uh, subjugate people, then what you do is you create more of a risk of political violence from articulating itself uh, in a particular way. So that's the second thing that I would say in terms of dealing with political violence. And thirdly, and this is where, this is a point that I think doesn't get mentioned enough, but we need to look at the structures of power, which are dominated by Western nation states, which disallow Muslims from speaking through the language of Islam. The language of Islam is one that rejects the idea of what Professor Salman said at the University of Leeds says is Westernese. It's a language that basically says that the West is the best all the way from Plato to Plato. And that if you want to progress, if you want to advance in life, then you have to internalize Westernese. Muslims, on the other hand, are saying, no, we reject the idea of Westernese and we would rather speak the language of Islam. All the international institutions of the world powers deny Muslims the right to articulate their identity through this particular language of Islam until the world powers recognize that there is a significant population across the world, 1.3 billion Muslims. I'm not saying all of them believe this, but certainly a significant amount of them believe this, that West, the Western project has failed them. You know, post-colonialism has failed them. It's bought them only tin pot dictatorships and monarchies which have oppressed them and, and taken away their rights freedoms and not given them any desire. So until we have these structural changes as well as the practical policy changes, we cannot realistically sit here and say that we want to counter terrorism. Because you sure. can talk about, you know, implementing bollards and implementing CCTV cameras, but you're never going to be able to secure your way out of this issue. You have to address the underlying political factors. And the political factors are that you, people are sick to death of the Western project. They want something different. They want something new. And they're not being given it. Sure. 
So let, let, let me cut in there. Let me cut in. So that, that's, that's all fine. But here's the question. You know, we can accept all that. But I've not heard uh, a condemnation of the events from Hezbollah Tahrir. I've not heard a condemnation from you either, Dr. Sabir. I mean, why is that? Do you guys condemn this act? Why have you been so silent and unwilling to actually say that this is uh, an evil and barbaric act and we condemn it? When I have spoken to non-Muslims that I know who talk about this issue, want to know what, whether Islam justifies this kind of thing, I am very happy to say to them, that there is no justification in Islam for these kind of actions. Let's assume that we know the motive of this man. Let's assume he has a skewed idea that there is some justification in Islam for this. He is wrong. His action would be condemnable. No, no question about that. But condemnation, the way we have seen, unfortunately, from some Muslims in positions of being able to speak within the political medium or from a political platform, is extremely problematic because you're feeding into a political narrative which says Islam is to blame for violence. It is feeding into a political narrative that there are certain ideas from Islam that they have labeled Islamism, which is the cause of political violence in the world today almost exclusively. So when you feed into that without thinking about the implications of that, without separating out the fact that Islam forbids this kind of action from the fact that these actions that you're condemning actually go on by your own governments and your own people in the world today, you are feeding into that false narrative. When you talk about the acts of Muslims like this and you minimize the acts of people like the murderer of Joe Cox, the actual member of parliament who was stabbed to death by a man who shouted Britain first, he's shouting his political motive, and he's charged with murder as opposed to any offense under the terrorism legislation, you are reinforcing a double standard out there. And I think even more than that, you reinforce this sense that there's a collective blame. An individual has done this action. As I say, let's assume the premises that the media are working under, because I don't assume those are right, because we just don't know. But let's assume that all the premises that the media has adopted are correct and a Muslim did this for reasons that he thinks are justifiable by Islam, well, that is an individual. That does not leave 1.2 billion people responsible for that. And when you come out collectively in the political arena, condemning without thinking, without even knowing the facts, you are reinforcing <coughs> that. And in fact, some enemies of Islam might be thinking, you know, the Muslims do protest too much, we, me thinks. Yeah, you know, like that Shakespeare quote where you, mm -hmm. you, you like, you know, the more you protest your innocence about something, the more guilty you look. But actually, you know, it, to, to some people, it can come, you're reinforcing that. I, I just wish people would realize that. Can I, can I just briefly comment on why I don't condemn acts of political violence? Absolutely. Because it starts off on the framework that I justify and believe that they're legitimate and it doubts my humanity. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, I disagree with the entire framework that sure. condemnation is a, an absolute requirement. And also the, the, the laws that govern uh, this conflict, you know, states undertake acts of political violence through a framework of war. So you can't judge these acts then mm -hmm. based on criminal uh, fighting mechanisms. They have to be and governed according to the rules of war, and they are very different to what we have here. You know, sure. 
And by by the way, that 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 statement by Doctor Rizwan uh, about the uh, the you know the, this undermines his humanity to presume that he will justify it. There, there is actually even a premise in Islam for that sentiment. When uh, the hypocrites in Medina slandered the wife of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam Aisha one of the and, and she was exonerated by Allah in the Quran. One of the companions went to his wife afterwards and said, "You know, did you did you believe that she could have done that uh, that she was accused of?" And his wife said, "No, I absolutely did not believe that she could have done that she was accused mm-hmm. of." And uh, the man said to his wife, "You know, I'm so glad you said that because if you'd said, you know, I thought she could have done it." I would have suspected that you would have been capable of doing the same thing. Yeah, it, it's it's that 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 idea that you then label people, and and it is this. It is almost for a Muslim to have to enter a discussion on this in any forum. It is almost as if your ticket into the discussion is how much you are willing to say you condemn something, because the presumption is. You condone this, really, don't you? Until you sure. vociferously protest your innocence. I've just been sent this story, uh, and I think it was the 25th it's been marked as. There's a, a, a similar incident happened uh, where a person, a knifeman in a car, has mown down three people outside a Islington pub, I think it says here. Um, and that was on the 25th. But the police is not calling this terror. Very, very quickly, have you got any comments on that? Or well, any, any comments in contrast to what's happened last Wednesday? Uh, okay, so first and foremost, uh, one, we have to wait for the facts to emerge. The fact that I don't even know about this particular instance, either that I'm just not keeping up to date with uh, uh, emerging stories. But I think also, look, terrorism as a political construct is only applied to particular individuals, mm-hmm. those who are racially marked. So black, brown, and those who are racialized, so Muslims as well. So whenever a, a Muslim individual runs somebody over, uh, by default, what individuals may do is suspect that they are operating because of some global conspiracy to plant the black flag of jihad over Buckingham sure. Palace. But immediately those Orientalist stereotypes start playing out when that's not the case in uh, cases of non-Muslims. Sure. Any thoughts on that from uh, yourself, Dr. Abdul-Wahid? Yeah, I mean, well, it, it presents, it presents uh, the, the situation of, without knowing anything about the case, but it, it, it illustrates your question even illustrates the fact that there is two laws out there, aren't there? Mm-hmm. So there is law for murder and manslaughter and all these things. And then arbitrarily, you can tag on a label onto that when you believe it is related to a political motive and call it a terrorism law. And you can see when you leave definitions open, radicalization, extremism, Islamism, very, in a very open way, you can frankly use the law in a very politicized way. And, and the thing about law is it's meant to be law. It's meant to be for all, from the top to the bottom. It is not meant to be something you're supposed to politicize and use sure. selectively on parts of your population and not on others. Okay, uh, and I think we're kind of rapidly running out of time. Kaleem, any last thoughts? I'd like to take this opportunity to thank both of our guests, both of the doctors, for, for joining us and for, for sharing some of their insights on these issues. I hope our audience has had uh, an interesting time learning from both of these people. And I hope that we can continue the discussion online and and hopefully challenge each other and and challenge our guests on on some of the points they've made. 
I think it's not been without uh, controversy and controversial thinking, but that's kind of the point of the podcast. That's what we want to do, bring out alternative views, bring out different voices so that we can have an open and frank discussion about these issues which are really at the fore of not just our public life at the moment, but also deeply affecting Muslims on a day-to-day basis. Jazakallah khair and to our guest once again. And inshallah, like, subscribe and share. And inshallah, we'll be back with more topics next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.